And I immediately just started throwing these kids to the ground and winning each match. That's today's guest, nationally respected music educator, Matt Temple, talking about his martial arts career. Welcome to Music Ed Insights. I'm Alan Fire here with Steve Shanley. Each episode, Alan and I talk with national thought leaders in music education with practical insights for K-12 music educators. Steve, tell us about our guest. Matt Temple has been the director of bands at Nutrier High School in Illinois since 2007. Under his direction, the Symphonic Wind Ensemble has performed at the Midwest Clinic, Music for All National Concert Band Festival, and the National Band Association Band Directors Workshop. He's given conference presentations on student-centered instruction, curriculum, and repertoire. Find Matt's full bio, our show notes, and resources at www.musicedinsights.com. Alan, what was a high point for you in this interview? I liked the way he communicates his rubrics and values for ability-based groups well before the auditions take place. I think that's a great idea. And he's got some other practical pointers like that. What about you, Steve? What did you dig? Well, I appreciated the discussion on encouraging high-level performance without the competition and perhaps, more importantly, without making parents and students mad. Yeah, right on. I also loved it when he moved on to equity issues and he said, we hold up mirrors too much, not enough windows. I think it's a superior philosophy. Let's get to this conversation. Matt Temple, welcome to the program. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. Well, our primary topic today is competition in music education. So let's start out by establishing the role competition played in your own K-12 and collegiate musical experiences. What do you remember about competing and music when you were in school? Well, I think ironically, I didn't have a lot of experience with competitions growing up. And I think that's one of the things that ultimately shaped my view of competition. I remember one of the first times that I, I felt disillusioned with competition, it was actually at a jujitsu competition. <laughs> in eighth grade, I was doing judo and um, you know they put the kids in weight classes and I was actually a pretty light kid, but fairly tall. And so I got matched with all these like really small kids that were heavier. And I immediately just started throwing these kids to the ground and winning each match. And in the final match, I was actually matched with a kid that was a little shorter than me, but definitely stronger than me. And I lost. And, and I, I came away from that thinking, I don't know that any of these matches were really even. It was clear that I could just wail on these smaller kids. And then this bigger kid beat me. And I, I don't know that I felt like, oh, well, this was a really even match. You know, I learned a lot about jujitsu today. That was one of the first times I was kind of disillusioned with it. But I also remember in high school, I vividly remember the first marching band competition that we attended. It was a local competition. There were several bands in our class and we placed seventh out of seven. And I still remember the music that we played. I loved it. It was Fanfare and Allegro by Clifton Williams and Pictures and Exhibition. I mean, it was awesome music, lots of fun to play. Apparently we didn't play it very well, but I don't remember that. Competition just wasn't a large part of my upbringing. And in college, same thing. We weren't in competitions in my college. In college, were you in a program where you had to audition to get into the top band, for example, or to have lessons with the full professor instead of having lessons with the grad student or anything, not in terms of trophies, but still a little bit of competitiveness in the collegiate years? 
Yeah, sure. To get into the ensembles, you know, I think that's fairly customary. But at least in my mind as an educator now, I tend to see that differently the individual versus the ensemble. I'm sure we'll be able to talk about that a little bit as we transition into talking about your own program here at Nutrier, which I believe prior to your arrival was classified or labeled by many as non-competitive. I think many would still label it as a non-competitive band program. Do you agree with that label? Yes. I think the department has had that philosophy for upwards of 40 years at this point. So, for example, in the instrumental division, we host our annual Nutrier Jazz Fest, which is the largest non-competitive jazz festival in the United States. And basically, the only groups that are invited to perform are, and I shouldn't even say invited, that apply, you know, they just, they, it's very competitive just to get a spot, but there's, you know, there's no, you don't have to have a resume to apply. All of the groups are second bands, or if you're school only has one jazz band, then it's the one jazz band. Basically, it's designed for younger, more novice jazz musicians. And the whole day is meant to be incredibly inspirational. You know, we have master classes and reading bands and director clinics. And then the highlight of the festival is the evening concert, which always features a world famous jazz orchestra or performer, you know, like the Count Basie Orchestra. Tell me, you said they have to apply to get selected. So you do turn bands away from the festival. Is that correct? Yeah, but it, I mean, really, the application is just based on time. The link goes live at like 9 a.m. on some day and the applications just flood into the system. And, and that's basically what determines who is ultimately accepted. Talk about the format just a little bit. So it's one day, but it's like a five ring circus. So we have performances going on simultaneously. We've got a combo room that's going the whole day. We always bring in a university big band. We'll bring in a local jazz quartet from Chicago. And then, like I said, master classes, clinics. I mean, it, it like never a dull moment the entire day. It's, it's like real high intensity, lots of fun. I'm going to totally agree with you that the jazz festival that you're running sounds basically non-competitive in every element, except maybe if it comes down to uh, broadband speed or something, if you're only taking the first, <laughs> you know, the first so many bands uh, that, but right. what about the, the new Trier bands are regularly uh, sending in recordings for downbeat awards or to, or to perform at the Midwest clinic. And to me, that is, I'm putting up my band up against other bands and someone is deciding who is better and maybe it's not a first place trophy or a second place trophy but saying we performed at the midwest clinic to me that's still very competitive in nature and accomplishes a lot of the same things that maybe i would say the pro competitive camp would say going to a festival and getting a first or second place might do how do you differentiate that well, ironically, we no longer apply for the downbeat awards that ceased about a decade ago. And recently, we like most of our groups are not applying to play at the Midwest. But yes, I have I have played at Midwest, so I can address that. If the not applying for downbeat awards or not applying for some of those conventions stemmed out of the anti-competition philosophy, I'd love to hear more about that, too. I don't know that it's so deeply rooted in the anti-competition philosophy. I do think there's a fine line in just the whole idea of competition and where we have decided to draw the line as a department and, and as an institution 
is how directly are our students affected or aware of the degree or level of competition. So for example, if you go to a festival where bands are receiving a rating, your kids are totally aware of which bands are getting ones, twos, and threes. And they walk away with a sense of elation if they get a one, or maybe disappointment if they get a two or three. When you apply to play at something like the Midwest Clinic or the Downbeat Award, you're sending that application in separately as a director, unbeknownst to your community and your students. And they don't even know until you've been accepted. And once you've been accepted, you can frame that performance as an honor, as an achievement, as opposed to, hey, we beat all these bands for this opportunity. That doesn't even have to be on the table in the way that you present it to your kids. So I can see why directors that would be pro-competition would think, oh, well, playing at Midwest or Downbeat Award, that's similar. But in my mind, I think it's a pretty different thing. And I love the way that you talk about having a line and that the philosophy of the department, there is this line and you don't want to cross it when it looks a certain way. How does having three, four or five concert bands where the band you are in is determined largely by how well you play? And I get that on one hand, you would say, well, we want to group them by ability so we can choose repertoire and meet the students where they are in terms of their needs. And that makes sense but you still have a whole bunch of trumpet players who are competing for those coveted spots in the top jazz band or top concert band. So can you talk a little about how that's different and then especially how you cultivate that with your students so it doesn't feel as much like a trophy chase? You know, some of it is just dumb luck. At Nutrier, we have four concert bands and guess what? There are four classes at most high schools. You got freshmen through seniors and sure enough, because of the community in which I teach, when kids continue in music at the high school level at Nutrier, the great majority of them are studying privately, not just the kids in the top band, but across the whole program. And so what happens is for the most part, kids are sort of tracking at the same rate of progress through our entire program. Now, yeah, do some kids kind of leapfrog into the upper ensembles? Absolutely. Is it based on an audition? Yes, it is. But our freshman band, there's no audition. Everybody's accepted. So there's no audition sophomore year. We only start the auditions in the upper two levels. When you do that leapfrogging, when that happens, what words do you use to talk to kids who feel that they should have gotten that opportunity but didn't? You know, honestly, like most programs, our needs are based on instrumentation. And so sometimes we need an instrument and that's the kid that can play it and they can play it well. And so that's part of the conversation, you know, well, we need oboes and bassoons in our upper groups. We don't need trumpets and flutes quite as frequently or readily, but we, you know, we have criteria and we do have a, a wind, like a wind ensemble audition placement sheet that has a rubric and it explains the process. It explains our values. And honestly, you know, once we go over that with the students and we go over it with the parents, they all have an understanding of that process and they don't generally question it. I almost never have conversations with parents or students where they're saying, but my student is qualified for this ensemble and you made a mistake. Do you think that's because you've got the criteria explained um, really clearly? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the more transparent you are and the more intentional you are with your families, I think the more successful everyone's going to be, you're going to avoid the problems before they even start. 
So let's say you're maybe new to a high school program where there's about 115 students and it's pretty clear to you right away that 50 of these students should be playing call it grade three and a half literature and the rest of them probably need to be playing grade two literature and you're going to have freshmen trumpet players who are clearly better than the juniors and seniors what advice would you give to the teacher in that situation who says I want my program to be more like Nutrier. I don't want the students to care as much about the competition. And yet this is the scenario they get. Great question. So, you know, I've taught in other programs and other schools. And um, my first school was about 150 kids in band that roughly divided into two groups. And, you know, I, that was in a small rural town you know, a farming community. And the same thing worked there that works at Nutrier. Again, if you're transparent about how students are placed and, you know, why the groups need to be ability-based, I, you know, I, I don't expect you're going to have many problems with parents and students. I, usually the problems that have arisen in my program are a result of misunderstanding or, or miscommunication. You know, that it always, at the end of the day, it always comes down to communication. So I'm curious because this has certainly happened in my case as a parent, has, has being a parent reinforced or changed how you view competitive elements of your program? Yes, I would say that it's reinforced my views. Uh, I'll give you an example. My daughter was in a competitive show choir a lot of resources and time and they were phenomenal and sure enough they like swept every competition they ever went to you know they were the first place champions she was happy to be winning but i think when the day was done she just enjoyed performing you know and i think ultimately that's what it should be about she enjoyed dancing and singing with her peers and yes being on the stage and being a performer you know and i don't think you need an award to feel good about that well, and that brings me to my last question here on the topic of competition, which is some might argue that being in a show choir that works really hard and still maybe doesn't get first place, that that is teaching our children how to deal with disappointment and, and giving them a vehicle through which to kind of work through some of those things. What would you say about that? I'm going to shift gears here a little bit because I want to make sure that I drive this point home. Here's sort of my bottom line on competition, and this is what fuels my decision making. It's what fuels my philosophy. Music is art, and the arts are inherently subjective. They speak to each one of us directly and individually. So if the three of us right now were looking at a painting, I suspect that each one of us, Steve, Alan, myself, we would notice something different about that painting. And we would each value something different about that painting. It's the same thing in music. I value developing a student's ability to analyze, evaluate, interpret, and appreciate music as an individual human being. I want them to develop what we call the aesthetic appreciation. We always talk about aesthetic education in music and the arts. Well, I want kids to learn how to recognize beauty. So what is beautiful to one person might make another person feel differently, or they might find something else beautiful. 
so here's the difference. Competition is inherently objective and quantitative. Art is qualitative. These are very different things. So when you're talking about a competition, here are the categories, here are the points, or here are the scores. How can you compare a band from a small rural community with a band from a large affluent suburb? And should we be trying to compare what those students are learning and appreciating about music making? I don't think we should be. In one way, I might be sort of dodging your question, but I think what I, what I want to do is I, I want to go to the heart of the matter and just sort of like shake everybody's chair and say, this is what it's really about. <laughs> one of the things that I have always respected about the new Trier program and what, what you have been doing is, um, I mean, to put it bluntly, it's pretty easy for the director whose choir or band or orchestra does not sound very good to say, oh, yeah, I don't believe in competition. <laughs> and I feel that the new Trier program has done a great service for a lot of us to say, no, we can still do all of these great things and hold students to high standards and perform all of this repertoire and we can do it without the competition. So uh, I think that's a great way to end our competition discussion. I'd like to shift just for a couple of minutes over to the topic of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access in the music classroom. Last summer, you wrote an article I saw in the National Band Association Journal where you introduced yourself as a white male in your late 40s and then uh, proceeded to talk about how we might promote social justice through the Omar Thomas composition of Our New Day Begun. It's a great read for all music teachers, not just band directors who might program the Thomas with their group. Encourage all of our listeners to check it out. Matt, I feel like the intersection of COVID and George Floyd's murder opened the way for more articles like yours and a greater awareness of social justice in the music classroom across the country. But I also am a little scared that our focus on this important issue could be short-lived because so many have the luxury of not being forced to think about the topic. I'm curious what you're doing, what you think the rest of us can be doing to ensure that we retain this focus on issues surrounding diversity, equity, inclusion, and access in the music classroom. First, I want to say I share your fear that this important issue could be sidelined, you know, or overlooked at some point. And I agree that the greatest challenge to all of us is the fact that many of us are part of the dominant culture, which we'll classify as white. And so it's easy for us to overlook it because it doesn't directly affect us on a daily basis like it affects so many of our colleagues and peers and students from other backgrounds. First and foremost, we need to begin to move from being allies, what would be sort of considered support, but in a passive way, being an ally. That's a term that's been used for many, many years when you talk about diversity issues. But I think we need to be moving now to being what's called actively anti-racist, where we are becoming we're called to action. You know, we're actually making a difference in the lives of other people and not simply standing by and saying, I support you. And I think that's a really difficult thing to do. So here's some ideas about how we can begin to do that. I think number one, we as educators, we all need to be involved in diversity training. If you have not yet had that opportunity, you need to seek that out with your district at conferences, you know, reading in publications, so on and so forth. 
I think it's really important that you understand the terms that are used when we're talking about diversity, whether it be things like cancel culture or microaggressions, or what does it mean to be a racist? Because when you go through diversity training, you will realize that the definition of racism is not what you maybe thought it was. Many white people think that being a racist is simply being discriminatory against people of color, or sometimes people might even think that being discriminatory against people on the basis of faith or sexual orientation is being racist. Nope. Racist is a very specific thing, and I'm not going to try to unpack that now, but I think it's really important that everybody understands what racism is. And then once you go through that training to try to be involved in the conversation, I'm keeping a lot of books on my nightstand these days. There's a great new book that was recently published, and it's specific to the band world. It's called The Horizon Leans Forward. And the subtitle is Stories of Courage, Strength, and Triumph of Underrepresented Communities in the Wind Band Field. And it has several chapters written by a variety of people, some of them people of color, some of them women, some of them with different sexual orientations. And then the latter half of the book talks about just a plethora of compositions by many, many different underrepresented composers. If I'm an orchestra teacher, a choir teacher, a general music teacher, will I still find value in looking at that book, even though it's got a bit of a wind band emphasis? Yeah, absolutely. The first half of the book, the chapters are written by wind band folks, but they're not written about bands, if that makes sense. It's a more broad discussion. Also on my night stand is How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram Kendi. And I was very fortunate this summer my local library joined forces with a lot of other local libraries, and we actually had a Zoom session with the author of this book. And it was really informative and enlightening and inspired me to read the book. So I think that's part of becoming engaged in the conversation. But then, you know, as educators, I think probably the most important thing that we can do is to program diverse music with our groups. And if you feel so inclined, and I hope you will, to develop a social justice unit that you can teach in conjunction with learning the music. And even though I used Omar Thomas's Of Our New Day Begun in a concert band setting, I think the most obvious road into this for most band people is jazz. Because jazz is an art form that was largely created by Black Americans. And it represents their struggles, their triumphs, their experience in America. And a lot of it is infused with moments of racism and social injustice. And I almost feel guilty. I kind of came to this realization as a music educator a few years ago, like, how have I been playing jazz and studying jazz for all these years and never providing this context? It just seems so obvious. How did I miss that? And I think that's something that we all need to do, whether it's in our jazz room or in our concert band room, anywhere that we're talking about music and the arts, there's an opportunity to talk about the lived experiences of other people. And I'll finish up by saying this. I'm a real big believer of the windows and mirrors curriculum, and I can't remember who created it, but many students, when they sit in our classrooms, see what we call the mirror. They are engaged in studying things 
that reflect their experience in this world. And I'm talking about white people, the dominant culture. So whether we're in social studies class studying history or we're in the music classroom playing music primarily by white composers or so on and so forth, we have usually been exposed to things that reflect a white experience. And if you are a person of color in that classroom, you don't see yourself in those things and those experiences. So one of the most important things we can do is shift our curriculum so that we're creating more windows, windows so that we can be looking into another person's lived experience and can develop empathy and understanding for that culture. We should have you back another time and have a lengthier discussion on the social justice issues. I know that's something you're passionate about, and we'd sure love to have more of your expertise on that. But we also need your expertise on these five very important questions that I'm going to conclude with today. Are you ready for the lightning round, Matt? I am ready. All right. One, best place to eat in Chicago. Chicago deep dish pizza. There's several options, but I would go with Lou Malnati's. Favorite book you read to your twins when they were younger? Chicka Chicka Boom Boom. Piece of music or a composer that you wish more people knew about and programmed with their concert bands? Michael Markowski. Very original sound. No two of his pieces sound the same, and yet each one, you know it's Markowski. I would recommend Cave You Fear or City Trees as an entry point. If you were not a musician or teacher, what do you suppose you would be doing to earn a living today? When I was in high school, I wanted to be either a youth pastor, an engineer, or a musician. The rest is history at this point. And the most controversial one of all, Cubs or White Sox? Cubs. Well, Matt Temple, thank you very much for joining us today. Yeah, it was great to meet you and a joy to visit with you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Music Ed Insights. Please support this podcast by subscribing, rating, and reviewing it. We want to make this as thoughtful and practical as possible. Please send us your ideas for guests and suggestions for improvement. You can do that through our website, www.musicedinsights.com. You can also reach us on our Facebook page, Music Ed Insights, or via Twitter, at Music Ed Insights. Our website is also the place to find program notes, links, and a one-page download of this episode's key takeaways. That's www.musicedinsights.com insights.com. This podcast is sponsored and supported by Normal Design, Winterset Websites, Group Dynamic, and the Co-College Music Education Program. Learn more about them at our website. Let us know if your business or organization would like to join that list. New episodes drop every two weeks on Monday mornings. Get current. Stay relevant. Music Ed Insights.